0: Hello, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 263. Today is Sunday, the twenty eighth of January, 2018, and this interview is with Julie Jensen-Bennett, who's the CEO of Precipice Design, a strategic design consultancy based in London that is pioneering meaning-centered design and innovation. In this conversation with Julie, we look at how design can be a far more strategic component of your brand and business. We look at some of the important questions such as, what is meaning? How to craft meaning-centered design at the intersection of culture, brand and meaning? Can we human beings create a shared language with computers that understands the implicit and unspoken elements? A lot of great insights. Welcome to the Minter Dialogue Podcast, where we discuss branding and all things digital. I am Minterdial, your host, and you'll find the show notes on my eponymous site minterdial.com. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Minter Dialogue. Today I am in a funky part of London and uh, someone I met, I would say, in this wonderful world in a digital way, Julie Jensen Bennett, who's the CEO of Precipice Design. And we kind of met over this remarkable drum article you read. So, in your own words, Julie, tell us who you are, what you do, and what's your mindset.
1: So, uh, my name is Julie, I'm the CEO here at Precipice. Um, My background started in the technology industry. Um, I worked at Intel for 13 years, uh, very much in the digital virtual realm. And uh, when I moved to London about 13 years ago, I got involved in the the amazing world of product design, but also branding, and also started to incorporate entirely new types of social science methods into my work. And Precipice is the result of those worlds coming together. Mm. And um, there's a studio of about 16 of us now who are practicing what we call meaning-centered design.
0: Beautiful. Well, uh, that is, of course, why I wanted to speak to you, Julie. Um, your mindset?
1: My mindset? Inquisitive, um, open, and quite persistent.
0: <laughs> Probably need that as well. I, I just uh, listening to what you say, 13 years, it seems to coincide at some level with the booming of Apple, uh, is Is there any relationship to that for you and, and how Apple put design in heart and center of so many companies
1: i i think apple i mean if i could if I could have a, a penny for every brief that started with we want the you know the 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 iPhone of this category. Um, i be much richer than I am now. Um, but, so yeah, Apple has done an amazing job um, raising the value of design. But I think um, when you look at what they've done, they've also really highlighted what we talk about when we talk about meanings. Because um, when you look at, at the iPhone, for example, it succeeded not because it's a phone, but because it shifted the meaning away from a phone. Mm. It's actually... Not a very good phone in a lot of ways. Right. And, and it was that ability to, to shift the meaning of the category rather than compete necessarily on just features and functionality that really changed the game and opened up new space.
0: So the thing that uh, attracted me and why I wanted to meet you and have you on my show was this article that you had in the drum article. Mm-hmm. So it was entitled Designing the Future, Why Meanings Are Key to Shaping Markets. Uh, so it, the way I, I read your article is at some level I interpreted it as as in, by embedding meaning in design. Isn't that tantamount to building brand value?
1: Absolutely. Meanings, brand value, um, they're all the intangibles that, that people buy when they buy something. And I, I think we all intuitively know how much real commercial value those meanings have because that's the difference between you know, a bottle of Evian and a pitcher of tap water, um, which are, you know, essentially the the same thing. Um, But the part of the point of the article is everything has meanings anyway, whether you design them or not, whether you intend them or not. But if you intentionally work with those meanings, if you pay attention, if you understand them, if you shape them, you can you can change things and you have a lot more power commercially than if you just sort of randomly let, mm. let meanings arise because everything you say, everything you do, every product you, you build or brand you build will mean many things to many people.
0: All right, so let's stay with the water uh, area because obviously having spent a lot of my life in Paris, uh, we we drink, we consume a lot of tam- um, you know, um, distilled yeah. water you know, um, and fizzy water. If you're looking at bottles of water, to what extent do you believe that the design is really going to help allow me to sell it for 10p more than someone else's water? And and it's some, my second part of that is, can you not get gimmicky in the meaning? Because you know, if you just want to attribute meaning, well, my water is pure. You you're, you you want something for you, but at some level, why is that? the only thing you're allowed to do or the thing that you feel you have a legitimacy to argue for, for your water?
1: Well, I think meaning the, the meanings and the design of of that bottle and of that brand and of the communication around it um, don't just have the power to change the commercial value of the product. They also change the sensory experience of the product. Mm-hmm. So um, even the way that, that you taste and experience and the, the visceral reaction that you, that you have to it will be... Um, uh, Completely framed by the expectations that you that you anticipate and that you bring into it that have been set by all of that cultural um, kind of scaffold around the water. So um, it's it, you can't separate out um, the kind of the all of those levels of, of how we experience something. They, they come together in kind of a a gestalt mm-hmm. unit. Um, I forgot the second part. Well, the
0: second part, part is. To what extent, for example, mm-hmm. Perrier can own the green-shaped torpedo mm-hmm. bottle or whatever shape that what it might be called, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to somebody else who'd want to use that shape? Why, why does Perrier have the legitimacy to use that shape, and, and how important is that legitimacy in the creation of that meaning? Uh,
1: so historic meanings and that lovely word that everybody is mm-hmm. going after in France of iconicity... Um, you know, is, is, is basically, yeah, symbols you've already created. So you've created the symbol. Um, culture, the people, the consumers, the audience are the are the people who give you the legitimacy to, to to use it or not. So, so it's 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 that interplay. It's the transfer of agency. It's the power between the producer and the consumer, mm-hmm. the author and the mm-hmm. reader that um, determines whether it is iconic, whether it is symbolic and whether it has cultural value that people want to kind of carry on and use further and appropriate.
0: Right, so when you're a historic brand is one thing, when you're a startup Mm. is another. Mm. So when you are a historic brand and you've already established your shape, then you have to pay allegiance to that. Uh, I assume, and then you know, I would or, normally or or not. or or not perhaps. But then, as a startup, you're kind of creating, mm. you're starting from scratch at some level, and and you can start with the type your own sense of meaning to begin with.
1: Well, we often talk about meanings that you can you can blend them, you can borrow them, or you can break them, and when you're starting up, particularly if you're creating a new category, if you're creating a new a new meaning. Borrowing is an amazing tactic. If you, if you kind of take meanings that exist in other categories and other parts of culture and shift them over, you can, you can shift over a lot of cultural currency um, and not have to do all the work yourself.
0: Well, in certain categories, I'm imagining, it's a little easier to craft meaning than in others, and therefore you can borrow from more meaningful industry than others.
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, culture is... Very category specific. If you look at, um, for example, pharmaceuticals um, and the culture around that, it's very global, very stable, and it's very easy to move move things around because it it, it operates at a, at a at this international level. Um, meanings and codes in something like confectionery in sugar and chocolate and candy, you can barely go ten miles down the road and it changes. And um, so you have to you have to very much be aware of the category that you're working on the context. That you're putting it in and um, kind of concoct from there.
0: One of the things that struck me coming here, Julie, it's always good to visit in the in location as opposed to Skype or something. Is mm-hmm. as I get to see a little bit of how you work and on your walls here, you got these amazing maps that you work up uh, in as part of your brief. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, obviously I could maybe take a photograph and I might, add, I might add that in if it's not too proprietary. But can you describe your process, um, which makes you specifically different uh, at Precipice in terms of how you go about designing?
1: So our design process starts by scanning culture and by trying to take, because basically culture is a collection of patterns and meanings that are implicit. Um, so, how do you know uh, where the end of the queue is? How do you know when to shake a hand? How do you know what the appropriate response is in a situation those are Those are implicit cultural patterns that we we learn by being in culture um, and by by gathering large quantities of data from um, interviews that we do with people from social media, from academia, from advertising products all of all of this cultural soup, pull it together and use a variety of social science techniques. Um, from sociology, anthropology, linguistics, philosophy, um, semiotics to um, make those cultural patterns explicit. And the maps are, are basically just a way of, of, of showing what those patterns are and how they relate to one another. That's when they become objects for design because it's, it's like with language. Once you know the grammar, once you know the vocabulary and the dictionary, you can, you can communicate more effectively. You, know, you can use that knowledge to communicate more clearly. But you can also use that knowledge to start breaking the rules, to create new expressions, to write poetry. Mm -hmm. And um, so these patterns become creative um, tools, Mm -hmm. which we use to design and basically create new patterns. Mm -hmm. And once we see the opportunity for a new pattern, where you're basically making new culture, making new patterns, then we have to figure out what are the products you need to design to make that? What are the stories you need to tell to make that happen? What are the brands and how they would exist to make that future come to life? Hmm. Um, a friend of mine from Intel, he has a great um, process around science fiction prototyping. He says you, you basically you make the future by the stories you tell yourself about it. And um, that's very much what we're doing with, with with culture is we're 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 envisaging the culture we want to make, and then we figure out the stories we need to, to tell mm-hmm. so that 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 cultural actually comes to exist. Mm-hmm. Well, so let's
0: um, you mentioned pharmaceuticals before, and okay. and uh, off the record or off the record <laughs> prior to speaking, we spoke about uh, diabetic pens, which I know awfully well. Uh, where's the romance or the poetry in a diabetic pen? How does one actually even? Get someone's chakras open up to that in a pharmaceutical executive suit. Sweet to adding poetry to an insulin pen.
1: Well, often in a diabetic's life, uh, it comes down to food hmm. and eating and the all of the rich sociality that goes around eating. And a lot of a lot of the work that we've done with diabetics over the years has to do with how do you. How do you keep the the degree of kind of tracking and control and monitoring that you have to do from eating from getting in the way of life mm-hmm. and um you know kind of uh, preventing the the, the the deeper things that you' you 're trying to get out of intaking and calories and, and and so forth so
0: so that that 's for the diabetic per se, but the individual who's paying you is the you know the, the head of marketing at x pharmaceutical company and and there's, I mean, you know, having run business myself, usually the brief is going to be, you know, how can you make it cheaper, sharper, quicker, and that kind of a thing. Of course, I want it to have a great shelf life and oftentimes forgets the consumer, frankly.
1: All, I mean, yes, all of those functional attributes are are deeply important. But one of the biggest issues in pharmaceuticals today is compliance. Mm-hmm. Um, right. If people actually don't engage with the therapy, if they, if they don't take the drug, um, not only will it not be efficacious and you won't get the results that, that you're supposed to get, but they won't be selling as much. Mm, there, it
0: almost becomes a liability. Yes. <laughs> when, um, right, So in your article in The Drum, you mentioned um, three interesting cases from CES. One was the the meaning of water, which mm-hmm. I, I thought was very cute, um, from Kohler. You also mentioned something that perked my interest, L'Oreal UV Sense, And then the last one, a little bit more maybe... Um, ahead of the game, is the tilt spin tails, which is just this AR textiles. So the question I had for you is, how in these three cases, maybe you can describe at least the one you prefer, um, how is the meaning coming through? To give us some, a real understanding of, of your insight uh, about these new CES ideas.
1: Mm. Well, I think, um, if I start with Kohler, I think it's interesting because are um, they are they're experts in bathroom fixtures and fittings. And um, over time, things like the, the tap or the faucet that you have on your sink or the, 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 the basin, um, the shower, your bathroom itself, have become very um, decorative. Um, it's about kind of aesthetic. It's about style. Um, and I think what Kohler has been, been doing over, over many product releases, is, but particularly in, in this space, is um, shifting that meaning um, to experiences, um, but also circling back historically to where plumbing started, which is technology. Um, you know, when you think about kind of what are the technologies that most have fundamentally changed the world, plumbing, the ability to get clean water to where you need it um, in the way that you need it is, has been been very, very transformative. And now they're starting to explore how, how embedding sensing and connectivity and um uh, connection into things like alexa and google and, and the smart home um then transforms that technology mm. again in the way of living again and, and i think the that um sort of questioning what what is your bathroom there for and what is what is what is the tap there for what can it do mm. and what can you do for
0: Well, it sounds like well on one hand it, it means that they're really gone back to their roots at some mm. level and that's Uh, from a branding perspective, Mm. awfully interesting. The second thing that strikes me about this example is the importance of the ability to collaborate because no longer am I just creating a tap. Mm. I'm creating a tap that needs to be plugged into Alexas, maybe my Apple Watch. Uh, I'm clearly going to have some role within the infrastructure and the technologies, the Wi-Fi's, and the other parts and bits that allow me to connect. Mm. So it's no longer just me working in isolation.
1: Absolutely, and then, how do you even know that your tap can listen to you or that it can do stuff for you? How do you um, understand what its capabilities are and and um, how do you uh, kind of relate
0: to, yeah, not, to m- not to mention the concerns of privacy it's yeah. listening to me in my bathroom. Mm-hmm. <laughs> interesting so um, you're, the third one you talked about was this tilt spin tails where you're using augmented reality and I was wondering in, from a design and your very more humanities approach to design whether it's um, anthropology or sociology as we were mentioning before you talk about AR and I was just wondering because you've you're probably got a, an opinion on this are you a fan of AR? do you think it's the future? or, or is VR more interesting for you? What, which, um, where, how do you spin on that?
1: Well, I'm definitely part of the percentage of the population that finds VR as it exists today very physically uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. So, um, I'm definitely Nick, um at this point of, of, of its um, of its development. And um, I think AR is is probably a much more accessible um, way forward. I, I think it's particularly interesting because it creates these layered physical digital experiences um, where in VR you're you're much more embedded in the virtual world. I think mm. um, the the degree to which technology is actually stripping away the virtuality and embedding itself in the physical world is much more interesting.
0: Yeah. I mean, certainly from a design perspective, having this notion of a physical object in front of you and a layer in between, just it's the endless opportunities mm. that are out there so um you on linkedin you've uh, you got a really interesting complimentary article to the drum where you and i want to read out a couple of phrases they're actually not exactly following each other but the ones that i they perked my interest and you so you write computers won't be human they won't have human consciousness but they will have sentience the capacity to feel perceive or experience we don't think like computers and computers don't think like us but we will need a shared language to communicate between our ways of thinking and making sense of the world. And I think that shared language just might be meanings. But we are also painfully aware of the limitations of that language. So much meaning doesn't live on the page, but in the implicit and unspoken. So I, it was a really well-written article, and I really enjoyed it. But it's, at some level, is not the conclusion that it's a case of shit in, shit out.
1: Well, I think the shit in, shit out or garbage in, garbage out um, actually is a paradigm from our last century of computing where it was literally what you put in is what you get out and it was the degree of of, um, direct um, instruction of the computing um, that, that got you your answer. What's changing and what makes AI begin to enter this, this, this point of sentience is that um, the technology itself is making sense of what you've given it mm-hmm. and will be creating um, a, a a different level of, of meaning, symbolic representation and understanding of it that didn't exist either in the data that went into it or the programming that applied to it. And um, so... The AIs will be creating these symbolic meanings, and we will also need the AIs to understand our symbolic meanings. Mm. So it's basically this move to the symbolic that is going to be the, the vast change forward from where technology has been in the, the non-symbolic and the explicit, in the very um, direct.
0: Mm. Well, it sounds very. I mean, I mean, working in AI, are uh, you familiar with the concepts? It, it's awfully complicated to start saying, well, that wink means something differently than this wink. Mm. And I'm not even talking about a blink. Different winks can mean different things. And and the ability to code that, encode that, seems awfully complicated. Um, The idea of these implicit concepts is, of course, deeply interesting from a brand perspective. And as we say, it's also this culture which is resident within a company creating products. So the brand is actually already living within the people. And, um, and, you, and you say at some point you can create a mutual and shared sense of meaning, but isn't that what culture is? And then what companies should be doing is trying to create that culture already and that meaning within the company, within the human beings, much less the machines. Mm. It seems to me that most companies fail even at that Hurdle to create meaning and and a, uh, a rich culture within companies, much less in the packaging that they're trying to sell. What do you think?
1: Well, I, I think kind of going back to my uh, my earlier point, the any time you put people together into a group, you create culture. The question is whether you're intentionally creating a culture and whether that culture aligns with your corporate values, with your brand values, and with. With your business objectives and is it, it, it kind of benefiting each participant al- along the way. So, um, so, so, regardless, every company has culture, and many of them are quite bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the the beauty of the tools that we use in meaning centered design is that they work just as well looking to the inside as they do looking to the outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and often we have to map and and analyze and understand the company culture of our client as much as the consumer culture they're trying to intercept. Because the more that you're aligning those, um, the more efficient the activity is going to be, but also the more um, uh, resonant kind of the meaning is likely to go from one end of the chain to mm-hmm. the other. There's going to be less interference kind of blocking it out, mm-hmm. and messing it up.
0: When you're in the fashion industry, because something obviously you're aware of quite a lot, you tend to have a fashion designer director who sort of gives the vision of the creative output. At some level, that fashion designer is just imbuing his or her own vision of what that is. Obviously, they're supposed to do it under the banner of, you know, Celine or or Dior, and they pay reference to that. But it it seems, in fashion in particular, and it's something I, I see in a lot of industries in general, the challenge of having a deeper meaning other than just making money. Do you find that this ability to add meaning in your design and in the company, it's something that applies to all manner of industries or is not?
1: Absolutely. Um, but you've identified one of the the key issues that, that has historically plagued industries, which is the belief that um, kind of big cultural change, um, visionary meanings uh, are kind of the preserver of the creative genius, that there are certain people that can see these things.
0: My name is Johnny Ive.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, And then if you have um, an organization around that creative genius who will make sure it happens regardless of what the spreadsheet says, what the capital investment is, or what the manufacturing line um, wants to do, um, it's possible. But without those conditions, it's not. And um, what what we truly believe is is that um, these tools, um, making kind of the the intuitive and the implicit explicit, make meanings accessible to a much broader um, array of stakeholders and make them usable within the types of interdisciplinary, collaborative, real world, team based product and brand generation activities that most of us are engaged in um, and the companies that most of us work in.
0: When you're, uh, let's, if I take Lagerfeld, mm-hmm. do you think, you, I don't know if you've ever had a chance to work with him, but is he somebody who's open to this? Because at some level, I'm just thinking through some of these personalities that I have mm-hmm. met, they, they, it's like opening up their brain. They don't want that. They, this is the secret genius.
1: Um, I think there is a perhaps a hesitancy to, you know, if, if, if you're a poet, um, right. you know. I don't want well, to show you my cuisine. Yeah.
0: Like the, the, the script before the final one, I don't want to show you that because, it, you know, it showed you I didn't know how to spell that word and I had to look it up and I found out how to spell it correctly and then I s- published it.
1: So so it is, it is quite radical in, in that way of transferring power from mm. very few um, kind of privileged voices to a much broader range of, um, I think cultural creators and hopefully cultural saboteurs as well. So yes. um, so yeah, it is, it is threatening to, mm. to, to, to those types of...
0: And so do you find that in your job you're um, sometimes faced with proselytizing or at least explaining to them the benefits of democratizing the design process so that it is more accessible? Uh,
1: generally, the reality is that most companies don't have access to creative geniuses. Mm-hmm. Um, they don't have... Um, and they don't have the working methods to engage with that that type of work mm. either. So uh, it, it's 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 often more of a relief to companies to to understand that they they can actually do this work themselves yeah. if they if they just engage with mm. it. Right.
0: That's note to self: check out what luxury companies can actually go without a creative designer. So, um, last question for you, Julie. In your bio on LinkedIn, you say that you're passionate about the power and limitations of user-centered design and consumer market research. Uh, inside of my head, I'm thinking maybe the limitations she's really working on the consumer market research. But with regard to the power and limitations of user-centered design and consumer market research, elaborate where are the weaknesses or the limitations and the power.
1: Well, the the power um, I certainly first experienced uh, at Intel when we started hiring anthropologists and um, cognitive psychologists, and uh, could could go through these life changing experiences where you go out into the world and you you experience the world as another person experiences it, and that changes you, and that changes your perspective on life. And that that privilege of being able to not just experience the world from your own point of view, but but from the point of view of other people, is is one of the greatest parts of the job, and um, incredibly powerful. Um, I think with user-centered design, one of the biggest limitations is the fact that it's been um, largely turned into a process. And processes are designed to give you the same outputs when you have the same inputs. They're Mm -hmm. supposed to be predictable. They're supposed to be repeatable. um, They're supposed to be scalable. And um,
0: you sound like a VC
1: <laughs> and I worked at Intel for a very long time, which is a very process oriented company um, and um, basically if you if you have a process and user centered design is a process in in those ways, if any company who puts the same puts it, inputs in will get similar outputs out, and um, so it 's very very difficult to get to more disruptive and more challenging innovation with those tools. I think with consumer market research um, there's an overwhelming focus on what people literally say and not nearly enough focus on um, taking the things that, that people are saying, that they're doing, that they're making, um, and that they're expressing across all aspects of their life and um, analyzing them more deeply and um, helping articulate the things that, that people need and feel and desire and believe that they can't articulate. Um.
0: So um, if I take that and I look at the idea, going back to our insulin pen, maybe the Sanofi and some others that are doing these things, they might use user-centered design. And they might come up with exactly the same pen. Mm-hmm. The question is at some level is how do you get that sense of difference and, 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 and a specific owned meaning within the organization? For example, do you need to have the CEO living and breathing that meaning into it or or is it just you know maybe up, up to the two brands to make their version of it
1: i, I think if i think if a, a ceo understands that um meanings are real and they have value that kind of social constructed reality is, is 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 very powerful that um they will have a better chance of of success but I think um, the important the important thing is for the product that's being made to um, work holistically with the communications and the messaging and the branding around it um, that these are designed and implemented from a a shared view of what's going on and it's the it's actually the products that you make it's the things that you do that make the meaning rather than the story that you tell yourself around the boardroom
0: well, on that, uh, Julie Jensen-Bennett, thanks so much for coming on. It's been a delight listening to you and talking about these sort of things. It's, it is, as you often say, you know, a soft topic, but really, first of all, I think it's what drives us human beings and our emotions and, and it gets my juices going. Um, what would be the best way for someone to get in touch with you or at least find out what you're up about? where you might write anyway what do you really like
1: well you can find us at um, precipicedesign.com um, and there's links to all of our social media you can follow me on twitter at Jensen Bennett um, and uh, yeah we're always kind of writing speaking um, chatting and, and love to love to talk about this stuff
0: well you're on you're on a great lovely path and I think quite a different one from most of the design companies I know so thanks for coming on the show um, look forward to staying in touch and uh, keep on adding meaning
1: Thank you.
0: Thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minto Dialogue show. You'll find the show notes and other blog posts on MintoDialogue.com. If you enjoyed the show, please like the handy Facebook button. Or better yet, head over to iTunes to give a rating and review. But first, relax, to Joss Sax's Paint.
2: Oh, fill me with all your colors any different way. And heal me with all your imperfections that you mention in your lack of self-secure.